This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. In this episode, I welcome on Dr. Carla Kwan. Dr. Kwan is an associate professor with the Department of Hospital Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. I met Dr. Kwan through the Cogent's Immunology course, which is a amazing course that's put on by Dr. Samuel Yannick, who has created a framework for understanding immunology from a functional medicine basis. I was most interested in talking with Dr. Kwan after learning about her new book, The Long COVID Solution, and getting a chance to read it. It was very helpful in putting together a framework in understanding how to approach long COVID. More about Dr. Kwan. She is dual board certified in internal medicine and addiction medicine. She created and directs the adult inpatient bone marrow transplant massage service at the University of California in San Francisco. She is on the faculty at the Osher Center for Integrative Health in San Francisco, where she provides consultations in integrative oncology, integrative medicine, and is the chair of their educational case conference series. She teaches a food is medicine course, and she has a very interesting background in her journey to integrative medicine. And I think you'll enjoy understanding her background and also her holistic and integrative approach to post-viral recovery. In this episode, we get into various aspects such as mast cell activation, gut health, stress, and various components that are not being addressed conventionally um, for the most part when talking with long COVID patients. So if you or someone you know or a patient of yours is struggling with long COVID, I think you'll enjoy this deep dive into approaches into caring for long COVID patients. Without further ado, welcome to the next episode of The One Thing Podcast. Dr. Kwan, welcome to The One Thing Podcast. It's so great to be here with you today. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for reading my book and for inviting me over. I'm excited for this podcast. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, it was so great to read your book and learn more about a framework to think about long COVID and help to help patients. And I can't wait to get into more information about that today. Um, I would love to kind of start off just hearing more about your personal career trajectory. Um, you're working within one of the premier integrative medicine uh, programs in the in the world, probably. And um, I know the program's probably one of the first that really got established. And so I'd love to kind of hear your 
career and how you ended up in integrative medicine. Yeah, um, yeah. So I just really feel so fortunate to work at Osher. Uh, it was the first sort of integrative academic center uh, that was launched, and then I think Harvard uh, was the second oldest that har launched after us, and uh, started out first as a research center and then added clinicians, and uh, only in the last few years. And so I'm pretty lucky to be part of that growth and to be part of an academic university so that uh, we can practice more along the lines of evidence and evidence-informed medicine, which is really big in academic medicine. And I feel that integrative medicine has such an important role to play. And I do feel that uh, it's, it's probably coming of age and will come of age in the next few years where it will become I think something that most people will be aware of, uh, and I think it's gonna be huge. Um, but how I got into integrative medicine was a little bit of a, of a sideways uh, kind of scenario. Uh, I, I trained in Boston, and when I finished my residency, uh, I was a hospitalist for many years. I started hospitalist work in 2005, so I've been a hospitalist for many, many years. Um, and I was really drawn to the acute life death emergency. Like I loved ICU care and emergency room care, um, sort of like high stakes, but also high rewards kind of situation. Uh, but my personal background is I'm from South America. I'm part Peruvian, part Brazilian. And uh, in childhood, you know, we used a lot of phytotherapy for common colds and just common ailments like, you know, uh, abdominal pain. Um, but when I went into medicine, I, this, I, you know, I went to an allopathic school, so it was very biomedical. It was like drugs and surgeries that we use most. So I completely abandoned that model, uh, of care and it seemed to be very discredited at the time. Right. So I, I, I didn't even think that there was a path to explore that within allopathic medicine. Uh, but then, uh, in my journey as a hospitalist, uh, after I graduated from residency, I, just that last year, I, was, I had chronic fatigue syndrome and uh, I was diagnosed with celiac disease. I was diagnosed with a uh, autoimmune disorder. And I had the experience of many of my patients where I had seen neurologists and other specialists and each one of them had a drug to give me, but I didn't feel well. And so um, I didn't know it at the time, but um, going on the correct diet for my biotype, which was a gluten-free diet, was what cured, you know, everything. It gave me my life back, gave me my brain back. And in fact, I had to take a six month sabbatical after grad, you know, after graduating from residency to rest. And I remember mm -hmm. that I would sleep 18 to 22 hours a day mm -hmm. during that time. And so uh, at, at the time I was really interested in hospital medicine and I did that for a while. And I came to California to join UCSF and Bob Wachter who coined the term hospitalist and probably is credited with creating the field. And it was really exciting to work, you know, with under him because he's a very thoughtful leader and uh, also has that sort of like vision towards the future and how hospital medicine can grow. And part of my work uh, was co-managing the bone marrow transplant unit service, which I did for a number of years. Uh, at UCSF, the oncologists mostly just write chemotherapy, and we actually manage the patients. We mm -hmm. do everything else. And, uh, you know, I had the, 
the gluten-free diet had probably established in me great respect for the power of diet in affecting health, but it was running in the background as I was doing all of this biomedical medicine. And then, uh, you know, all of these other things started just maybe my brain was wired to pay attention to certain things. But while I was working in the bone marrow transplant unit, I noticed that a lot of the life-saving chemotherapeutic drugs that we use to cure leukemia came from plants. They were just highly purified, you know, extracts that were given IV. And so, you know, the mustard plant gave us cyclophosphamide. The periwinkle flower gave us vinca alkaloids like vincristine, vimblastine, and uh, high dose a regimen with high dose vitamin A that came from China. Originally, the work and the analysis came from China, combined with arsenic, which arsenic's been used since medieval ages to cure like ailments like rheumatism and abdominal pain, um, were combined for this protocol called Atra that revolutionized. Um, what was once a killer of young people with uh, uh, with APML, so promyelocytic leukemia, all of a sudden people were talking about a cure. And we, you know, in in oncology, we never say cure because cancers tend to, at least leukemias tend to come back. So we always say remission. So the fact that people were saying this is a highly curable cancer was just astounding. And all of this happened while I was there. And possibly because of my background, I don't know, uh, you know, this, this idea came to my mind. It's like, wow, like if we're using highly purified plant derivatives to cure cancer, like really, really deathly cancers, what if we use just natural plants available, you know, as food or as supplements to heal chronic illness or to prevent mm -hmm. cancer? Mm -hmm. And that just kept bugging me and it just like planted itself in my brain and it just wouldn't let go. And um, when I heard about Osher Fellowship, which is was brand new, I was literally class two of two. They had not taken fellows. When I heard there was a fellowship, I just knew I had to do that. Mm -hmm. So I did uh, my fellowship at UCSF at the Osher Center. I was just the second class. Uh, and uh, after that, I started working at Osher Center. And so I transitioned from acute life-saving to, you know, starting to deal with chronic fatigue syndrome. And what I noticed was I was ill-equipped for that. I knew a lot about immunology already, fortunately, with, uh, you know, the leukemias. And so the Cogens course, which you and I both took, really, really fundamentally uh, improved my deeper learning about, okay, what are the immune mechanisms behind chronic fatigue syndrome? Mm -hmm. uh, so I found that course to be really helpful and it made me a better physician. And by the time COVID, you know, started uh, uh, running its course, I had just finished the Cogens course and was treating a lot of chronic fatigue syndrome successfully. And I started seeing long haulers. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happened is um, a lot of doctors got burned out and left our practice during the pandemic, as I'm sure has happened across many, many clinics and hospitals. And so there were four of us and then there was just me. And I got pretty overwhelmed with the volume of both chronic fatigue and long haulers that I saw. Uh, and I had to uh, close my clinic to new patients because there just was not enough patient slots. So part of my um, you know, background uh, for uh, writing the book was and uh, becoming good is uh, the Cogens course did give me a good framework to start treating long COVID. 
And after I found something that just kind of like seemed to work for most people, uh, I, I thought, you know, people need to know about this. Yeah. Wow. What a unique background to, to address the pandemic. I mean, it's, it's kind of like you, you came from, you know, really the trenches of oncology and immunology to chronic fatigue syndrome. And then all of a sudden we're in this pandemic that has this post-viral syndrome. It's like, I mean, it's like crafted career for, for the era that we're in. It's, uh, it's amazing. So from that viewpoint, how did, how do you see the long COVID patient compared to the chronic fatigue syndrome patient? Is it, does it have a similar feel or does it have a different, different aspect or element to it that um, jumps out? Yeah, um, I find it striking how much overlap there is between chronic fatigue syndrome and long COVID patients. A lot of overlap. I would say probably the major distinction that I've noticed is uh, that chronic fatigue patients almost universally have severe gut dysbiosis um, that needs to be addressed. And so I've learned a lot how to manage dysbiosis and IBS through chronic fatigue, my work with chronic fatigue patients. Um, but the, the brain fog, the neurologic symptoms, the exercise intolerance are all very, very similar. And a lot of the inflammatory mechanisms are really, really similar to um, long COVID patients. Mm -hmm. I think for me, the major distinction is I haven't seen a lot of gut issues in long COVID patients. Um, and, and, and that is probably the one uh, area where there, I, I believe there's a divergence between long COVID and chronic fatigue is that uh, I don't really see that in long COVID, but I almost universally see that in chronic fatigue syndrome. So I'm very aggressive with chronic fatigue patients to ask them about their bowel habits and, and mm -hmm. any GI disturbances and to aggressively uh, work that up through microbiome testing or, you know, breath testing or whatnot. With long COVID patients, I haven't had to do that so much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when you're saying chronic fatigue patients, does that also include like the fibromyalgia aspect, like a sort of the, those conditions are kind of grouped together often? Yeah, <clears throat> I find there's a spectrum of chronic fatigue syndromes and uh, fibromyalgia, I feel, has uh, pretty much a lot of the things that we see with chronic fatigue patients. They have a lot of gut dysbiosis. They have a lot of the brain fog and inflammation. But I do believe that it's it's different. It's in a separate category mm -hmm. than us. Now, having said that, um, I believe that the term fibromyalgia gets used very cheaply and it gets thrown around. A lot of the referrals I get for fibromyalgia I establish are not fibromyalgia, but are chronic fatigue syndrome due to other things. And so I do a physical exam that um, is very sensitive for picking up fibromyalgia. Yeah. And 50% of the referrals do not have the physical exam for fibromyalgia, but they have all the symptoms. So, right. mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been interesting to, and I'd love to kind of hear your experience with this is, you know, predicting who I, who we would have predicted would have um, ended up with a long haulers or co um, uh, long COVID 
um, versus who actually did end up with it. Um, you know, have you, were you surprised by the patients that you've interacted with that, that ended up like, what was their predisposing risk factors going into it? Or has it just sort of affected people um, in a very uh, heterogeneous way? Yeah, that's a great question. So I do think that um, long COVID is substantially due to inflammation, as I, I talk a lot about all the different types of inflammation. Inflammation, people tend to think is one thing, but it's actually multiple things and there are multiple avenues to inflammation, right? Many pathways can lead to Rome. Uh, mm -hmm. and so sometimes people say, I know I feel I'm inflamed, but my CRP is normal, right? And CRP is just a marker, indirect marker of interleukin-6. That's just one pathway, right? You can have autoimmunity and autoimmune-led inflammation, or you can have histamine-led inflammation. Um, so inflammation tends to be termed if it's one thing, but it's many things, and there's different mm -hmm. types to be, different ways of being inflamed, right? Yeah. So, um, but I do feel that inflammation is substantially at the basis of most of the symptoms for both chronic fatigue syndrome and uh, long COVID. Okay, so yeah, so the patient um, before getting COVID would have had potentially some, one of the subtypes of an inflammation already brewing and this sort of was a tipping point. Yeah. So like risk factors like diabetes or preexisting autoimmune disease um, are known risk factors for developing long COVID because you already have a path of inflammation active in your body. And COVID just sort of kicks the hornet's nest, you know, of inflammation. And so, what, what, you know, long COVID uh, does manifest differently in different people. Like some people will get, you know, clots. Some people will get myocarditis. Uh, but I feel that the pre-existing inflammation in your body will dictate a lot what your particular constellation will be in long COVID. So I, I've seen, for example, patients who had a heart attack the year prior, or maybe they had subdued, you know, um, uh, cardiovascular disease that wasn't manifesting. And then they get long COVID and they have myocarditis and they start having a lot of chest pain. Um, there may be people who had underlying arthritis who start having much more severe joint pain um, mm -hmm. or, uh, people who had autoimmune illness and see their autoimmune disease flare along with a boatload of new. So I believe that the unique fingerprint of how people manifest long COVID, uh, a lot of times is dictated by their pre-existing conditions. And those yeah. just kind of get amplified by COVID that just kicks up inflammation to a much, much higher degree than they had before. And maybe before their symptoms were so subdued that they could take a Tylenol every once in a while and they'd be fine. But now mm -hmm. it, it's overwhelming and it's manifesting in their body in a very severe way. So I feel that that's uh, one component. The surprising thing that I saw is I had some people who were completely healthy and were on no medications developed long COVID. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the reason is that people with no pre-existing conditions can get long COVID, but I know it can happen. And uh, what I've noticed in those patients were they had nutrient deficiencies and maybe their body was at a nutrient deficit that did not allow them to resolve uh, uh, their inflammation. So for example, 
maybe they had low iron, maybe they had vitamin D deficiency, and your body does use vitamin D to resolve inflammation. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of vegans who are previously healthy get long COVID because they lack those omegas in their diet to resolve inflammation. And so I don't, I don't have a study to prove this, but my, what I've seen in my clinic and what I suspect is that even though they didn't have pre-existing inflammation, they didn't have the nutrients needed to resolve inflammation that got kicked off by COVID. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And vice versa, I'm sure you've, you know, kind of come across, come across people who've had chronic diseases going into the pandemic era. And then they really worked on um, their, they've worked on their health, worked on their body. Um, They've done, you know, a lot with their own inflammation leading up to the pandemic and throughout the pandemic. And when they got COVID, um, even though they were fearful of the pattern um, of COVID setting them back on, you know, um, a good number will, Will have sailed through just because they were already proactive. Exactly. Exactly. So I had patients who were on a number of supplements already for their inflammation. Um, and, and of course, I've had long haul patients who were already on the protocol who got COVID again. And they were like, oh, the second time I just kind of sailed through it, you know, yeah. it was, it was yeah. kind of for two days. And then I was back to, you know, I was fine. So um, I think nutrients uh, and my respect for nutrition uh, does manifest in long COVID. So great. Um, So I love how your book um, organizes some major topics um, to really think, think through when we're, we're kind of exploring like what, how to help ourselves deal with long COVID, um, you know, if once a person is kind of in a long COVID um, expression of the body. Um, so one of those major organizations is just the way that you organize inflammation. And you talked a little bit about that already, but I'd love if you could kind of take us through your view of the different subtypes of inflammation and then kind of help us understand how those express um you know, the symptoms that they, they have? Yeah, certainly. So um, I, I, I'm, you know, there's a risk in oversimplifying what is complex illness. And I wanted to be mindful of uh, catching all the biggest categories, knowing that probably there are a few other things that uh, are less uh, manifest, but are probably present in some people. But overarchingly, what I saw in my work first with chronic fatigue patients and then with COVID were they were all inflamed, but they weren't always inflamed in the same ways, Mm -hmm. right? And so uh, going back to patients saying, I know I feel inflamed, but my CRP was normal, right? And those patients had autoimmune disease. And so they had other forms of inflammation active in their gut, or they had dysbiosis, and so they had IBS or dysbiosis, so they had gut inflammation contributing to systemic inflammation. And so looking at the majority of my patients and just kind of categorizing them in subtypes of inflammation, inflammation is definitely one of the biggest drivers of symptoms of both chronic fatigue syndrome as well as long COVID, but mm-hmm. it's not one thing, it's many things. And so generally I find that inflammation tends to fall under five categories. And 
there's classical inflammation and classical inflammation is what we think about when we think we have inflammation, right? Um, the aching joints that you may have after you overexercise and the aching muscles you may have when you exercise, um, how you feel when you're actually fighting off a virus is you feel inflamed and that can cause fatigue. And that's usually driven through, uh, you know, interleukin six and that CRP that you, when, when somebody's fighting a virus, you'll see CRP go up and your body becomes inflamed, but you know, that activates your immune system to act. And so that's a necessary mechanism of healing. But uh, that's only one type of inflammation. And so for the patients that come to me and say, I know I'm inflamed, but my CRP is normal. There are other types of inflammation that could be active in their body. And one that I did have a whole chapter about because I thought it was super important to talk about was histamine-mediated inflammation. And as you know, in cogents, they talk about the TH2 pathway all the time. Mm -hmm. and it's so, so important to address. And so histamine-mediated inflammation uh, was, for me, groundbreaking in my practice. I started checking histamine levels for the first time in my career at Osher, and I was really surprised at how many people had high plasma histamine levels. And mm -hmm. when I started seeing that, I started looking as like, what causes that, right? And so the life cycle of histamine is you have interleukin-4 that activates the Th2 cell to become a activated, you know, a, a activated Th2 cell, which then produces more interleukin-4. So you have this escalation of uh, the histamine pathway that then activates either mast cells, eosinophils or basophils to produce more histamine and now you have like this massive like cascade of inflammation. Mm -hmm. And that one was huge. Once I started pursuing histamine, I really started having so many breakthroughs in my patients. Yeah. And then of course, histamine gets broken down in the liver by ALDH, aldehyde dehydrogenase. And you need cofactors for that. You need riboflavin, you need iron, you need B3, you need molybdenum. But the, in, in women, universally what I see is they're iron deficient. And, and the iron deficiency comes with a riboflavin deficiency. So you don't have, you know, your liver doesn't have the, the cofactors for it to successfully break down histamine. And so these people get a syndrome that is very similar to mast cell activation, but they're just, they're just uh, building up histamine in their body. And so yeah. in that case, a low histamine diet, and then just giving them those cofactors, riboflavin, correcting their iron such a simple thing that people can do in the outpatient world. Oh, now you've like opened up the floodgates. You can get, your body can eliminate histamine. You start feeling better and the fatigue starts melting away. So that yeah. I felt was really important. And it's why I included it earlier in the chapter. People need to know about histamine inflammation. They need to start asking their doctors, can you please check my plasma histamine level, you know, and, yeah. and the two riboflavin and please check my iron while you're at it, you know, or ferritin. Right. What, yeah, and what do you what do you think someone feels like when they're having histamine, sort of like a histamine bucket overload? What like what is their what do you see as like a clue that that's happening? Well, the interesting thing of histamine is so interesting. It is a um, you know neurotransmitter in the brain. It's a biogenic amine, and it does so much throughout the body from brain to toe. And so, um, uh, interestingly enough, we need a little bit of histamine. I didn't put this in the book and I kind of regret it, but we need a little bit of histamine to stay alert. So, you know, mm -hmm. narcolepsy, 
people who mm. walk around and then just like go kapunk in the middle of the street. Yeah. Um, those are people who suffer from low histamine. Mm. And so a lot of the narcolepsy drugs are uh, some of the newer agents uh, increase histamine in the brain because you need a little bit of histamine to be awake. Yeah. But interestingly enough, uh, histamine is neurotoxic and neuroinflammatory. And so when you have excess histamine in the brain, not only do you have insomnia, you can't fall asleep, and that's really common in chronic fatigue syndrome as well as in fibromyalgia and long haul, uh, but you have more anxiety. And because histamine decreases dopamine in the brain, you have anxiety with depression, but you also can't think, you have brain fog. A lot of the symptoms that are common to myalgic encephalitis mm -hmm. long haul can be related, you know, to uh, high elevated plasma histamine because it's so toxic to the brain when it's elevated. So mm -hmm. uh, when I started checking and lowering histamine, that was a huge breakthrough in my practice. Great. Thanks for that explanation. I didn't mean to sidetrack you there. It just really is. I'm always curious to hear how, how to pick that out of a crowd because it's, as you said, it's just so prevalent in long COVID patients. Yeah. And in myalgic encephalitis patients too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a lot of patients come to me and they say, I think I have mast cell activation and I'll do the workup for mast cell activation, which includes like tryptase and a lot of other things. They don't have mast cell activation, but they do have histamine excess. And guess what? If it manifests exactly the same in the body, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's also important to check for mast cell activation. And I have diagnosed a few people with that. Mm -hmm. Um, it's mm -hmm. probably more common than we think it is. It's not so rare, yeah. but I'd say overwhelmingly high plasma histamine is what I see in my practice. Okay. And yeah, I know there's like, not to get too into the minutia of this, but I know there's like a lot people have to really do with like lab handling of those draws and it needs to be like frozen. And I mean, you can get a plasma histamine done in a certain lab center and not done properly, right? That is correct. That's important to know. It's a tough diagnosis to nail because uh, the samples have to be flash frozen. And then um, most labs don't do plasma histamine, so it has to be sent to a different lab. And if, if there's any errors in the process of freezing uh, the sample and it warms too much in the handling, you, you can have a false negative. And so sometimes, even if the workup is normal, I'll go ahead and give patients, uh, you know, and that's why it's also helpful to check for riboflavin, uh, vitamin B2, that's an easier one to check. Mm -hmm. If I see that the cofactors for lowering histamine are low, uh, I don't know that this is true, but my thought process is something is driving that. And it's the fact that your body has consumed all the riboflavin and its attempts mm. of histamine. And so for me, those are indirect markers that somebody could have a problem getting rid of histamine, even if the plasma histamine is normal. If mm. I see that combination of low B2 and low iron, I will suspect that this person has trouble with uh, histamine elevation, even if the plasma level is, is, is normal, because I know that it's not going to capture every histamine inflamed patient. And so I always check not just plasma histamine, but riboflavin and ferritin. And if the mm. histamine is normal, but the B2 and the ferritin is low, I will mm. treat that 
patient uh, in the same way that I would treat someone with elevated plasma histamine. Great. I love that explanation. So the other um, subtypes of inflammation, maybe we can continue down the that route. I think yeah. So, so I interrupted you. <laughs> oh, yeah, no worries. So um, classical is number one, and then histamine is number two. And then the third one that is really something I see a lot is autoimmune inflammation. So mm. I would have so many autoimmune patients coming to my clinic saying, uh, you know, my CRP is normal. I'm on rituximab or I'm, you know, on and, and my doctors are telling me my disease is controlled, but I'm so fatigued or I have Hashimoto's and my thyroid levels look perfect, but I'm still so fatigued. And so autoimmune inflammation is that third pathway driven by TH17 that I find is really important to address. And uh, I address it mostly through a lectin-free diet and mm. remove gluten, soy, um, you know, dairy products. Uh, and uh, I find that that's super helpful along with giving them the traditional, uh, you know, anti-inflammatories, making sure their vitamin D levels are nice and high, uh, you know, in the upper limits. That's with autoimmunity, I do want the vitamin D to be in that upper range of normal. Mm-hmm. You know, at UCSF, it's 50, LabCorp, it's 100. Um, and that can have incredible results for autoimmune patients. And then number four is gastrointestinal inflammation. We talked about dysbiosis and IBS. And overwhelmingly, I see with autoimmune patients that they also have the gut inflammation. And we know that our gut regulates 80% of our uh, antibody producing cells. So it's not surprising that there, you know, in the book, I talk about the gut autoimmune brain access, right? And so uh, for autoimmune patients, I'll put them on a lectin-free diet, but I'll also take a look at their gut. And then we work on um, modifying and improving the dysbiosis. So that's number four. And then lastly, neuroinflammation. Mm-hmm. And uh, Histamine, can cause neuroinflammation, but there's so many things that can cause neuroinflammation, including gut inflammation. And so I often talk about three, four, and five as like this kind of like axis of evil, you know, yeah. <laughs> of autoimmune gut neuroinflammation. But um, a lot of times working on the autoimmunity and working on the gut will relieve the brain because the gut and the brain are like hardwired into each other, right? And yep. uh, one can't get away from the other. So yeah. And your book does a great job um, kind of mapping out treatment approaches for each of these types of inflammation and, you know, testing and other things that you might want to explore. So that's really helpful. And I think obviously um, understanding the framework uh, is the first step. But, you know, a lot of people who are um, in a tough spot will ultimately they jump to right to the treatment section and kind of try to pick out some ideas. So I'm glad that that's there and it's like a resource and um, for people who, you know, really just want to take action. Mm -hmm. So fatigue is another way that the book is organized as sort of describing the different types of fatigue or fatigue buckets, as you call them. I think that's really helpful because um, when I think fatigue is probably the number one primary care complaint um, or at least one of them. And when people say they're fatigued, it's like, that's just such a general term. And I think it's really good to kind of add some granularity to the term fatigue and maybe you can help us with that. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that. Um, I mean, I think people know when they're fatigued. <laughs> so I don't know that there's there's a, a lot of mystery around it. But I'd say objectively, uh, what we could say is when activities of daily living, like getting up, taking a shower, cooking a meal, going for a walk, getting through a workday, are severely impaired um, by the the sense of fatigue, uh, then that is something that you need to pay attention to. Something is causing that. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't ca- you know happen on its own. And uh, there isn't one cause, and it isn't one thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, you know, you talked about like brain fatigue would be like one example, like brain fog. Um, maybe we can take that one, for example, because that sometimes people will call that fatigue, but it's more of like a brain tiredness, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So brain fatigue or brain, you know, could be uh, noticing impairment in things that used to be easy for you. And uh, uh, it can affect memory. Uh I find that a lot of times with the brain symptoms, it's due to neuroinflammation and neuroinflammation can manifest in different ways. It can manifest as pain. So like migraines or a sensation of migraines, uh, um, it can manifest as in a functional way. So uh, lack of attention, uh, memory loss, um, uh, and also the sense that sometimes uh, uh, activities of daily living that require uh, your brain, like getting through a phone call or getting through a meeting, if that leaves you exhausted and you have to take a nap after that, you know, that's something that you need to pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. You also go into some other aspects like POTS and, you know, sort of the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And one of the things I I really liked in the book that was really helpful is um, helping people get back to exercise in a very graded, gradual way. Because I think um, if if someone is affected by long COVID and they remember what they are, they used to be able to do before long COVID as far as like exercise and even working out or what have you. And then all of a sudden they can barely do anything. That can be a source of despair because um, it's like, well, I can't go to the gym. What am I supposed to do? And um, I'd love for you to kind of share a little bit about how, you know, getting people back to back to movement, back to exercise, and some of the early steps of that. Yeah. So um, it's really important to have a little bit of a shift in your uh, attitude and in your approach when you are recovering from long COVID or any post-viral fatigue syndrome. I think we live in a culture where more is more and more is better, but that's not always true with Mm -hmm. the body. And uh, Uh, And I think most people adopt the mindset of no pain, no gain. But two things that fundamentally have to shift in people's attitudes towards themselves and their expectations toward themselves is when you are recovering from serious illness, um, 
uh, that's not a healthy attitude to take and people overdo it. And then they um, put themselves in a state where they're, uh, where they flare and they set themselves back in their recovery. And so uh, I talk a lot about the importance of pacing when you have chronic fatigue syndrome. So incorporating periods of rest after any exertion throughout your day. Um, and so after a meeting, maybe take 30 minutes to close your eyes and rest your brain. Um, uh, and then in exercise, that's important too. And so really, really careful, slow, graduated approach. I share the um, Children's of Philadelphia POTS CHOP protocol, which uh, the first three or four months, you're really just doing floor exercises like Pilates exercises. You're not going out there and going for a walk or a hike um, until you can build core muscles and strength and toning to be able to stand up and do some walking and then just only very carefully. And so the problem that people get into is they push past the fatigue and then they're like bed bound for another week and they're yep. super inflamed again. And you know, exercise causes inflammation. So if you're healthy, you can push past the fatigue and inflame yourself because that'll build muscle. But if you're super inflamed, you're just really adding to the day when you'll recover. And so it's really important to have a, a, a change of uh, mindset and saying, you know, slow and steady, slow and steady, slow mm -hmm. and steady is the race, but also to give yourself forgiveness and permission for not being where you were athletically before. I think yeah. a lot of it is having a doctor tell you, I give you permission to not push past the fatigue, but you also have to give yourself permission and be kind to yourself during this recovery, be kind to your body during this recovery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's really wise and helpful. Um, and we all need to hear that. I think especially a lot of people coming into chronic fatigue syndrome and, and possibly long COVID, um, they used to, you know, say it was like more of an overachiever population, right? Like people who their mode was full go and, you know, kids, career, you know, going to night school, everything. And then, um, so this is, a, it's a lifestyle switch. Yes. Yes. And knowing, you know, it's sort of having that radical acceptance of where you are in life and knowing that maybe, maybe the universe is trying to teach you something that you'll learn. You know, I think anytime that we, uh, suffer and are sick, there's always, a teachable moment in that experience. And uh, my personal experience with chronic fatigue syndrome probably led me to being a better physician today and care for other chronic fatigue patients. So if I were given the choice to never have had that experience, I would probably still want to have had that experience because it made me who I am today. And mm -hmm. you are in it, you don't really see what, you know, the profit will be later on. It just feels terrible and you don't want it. But to be patient with the fact that there's there's knowledge to be gained, you know, from that experience about your body, how your body restores itself, how your body heals, to learn to take better care of your body and respect its boundaries right. are important things. Because, you know, we all will get older at some point and we'll have to uh, deal with a body that's older and more not as nimble at healing. And it's important to know how to take care of your body respectfully. Yeah. Yeah, that's really a good point. That reminds me of one of my dear patients, uh, like a 20, 25 year old that was um, 
really struggling with these kind of a similar chronic fatigue path. And she said to me, like, you know, now she takes care of herself in a way that she would have never done. And you know, she feels more optimistic about like her long-term health because of the way she's learned about sleeping and eating and nutrition and exercise. And, and uh, I was always, I was just so impressed by that answer because, you know, she it really empowered her. She learned a lot about herself and her body and, but yeah, I mean, not that we wish that upon anybody, but it's it's still like a very good point that you make and a good takeaway from the journey. So, um, well, I'd love to kind of go into just hearing more about um, anything you want to add, like you might have included in the book or updates that are kind of on the horizon. Um I know there were some research studies you referenced in, in the book. Anything that you want to share about what you're up to these days and kind of give us some kind of insight. And, um, of course, I encourage people, you know, we just kind of gave, uh, you know, some overview of the book. But there's so much details and actionable information about, like, what to do in your book that um, it's just such a valuable resource to just to get a copy of and and start to implement some of the ideas yeah um well um i i guided myself a lot based on my work but also on the um the article that was published uh by dr sam yannick on the um the five phases of recovery for covid and so i have chapters uh explaining the reasoning behind the supplements and so um, in, ad in addition to uh, fighting inflammation, there are other things that can cause fatigue as well, like having too many toxins in your body. And uh, his protocol includes antioxidants, but some people ignore that. They only focus on the anti-inflammatories. But I feel it's so important when you think of lowering inflammation to think about all of the toxin overload that your body has to, that manifests in your body when you fight off an, uh, a virus or a bacteria or any kind of infection. And so I, I provided a chapter on toxins because I feel that it's the right and left hand in fighting inflammation is adding uh, support for your liver to handle toxins. And that becomes even more important as we start getting into our 40s and 50s where our organs are slowing down uh, and uh, toxin uh, clearance is maybe less efficient. Maybe your GFR, you know, renal clearance is going down a little bit. Maybe your liver is not as nimble as it used to be in clearing toxins. Mm -hmm. And so adding that um, antioxidants, both in the diet, preventing toxins in your food by <laughs> eating clean foods is super important, yeah. of course. Um, I notice the older I get that my alcohol tolerance decreases. That's how I know right. my liver a little bit slower. Yeah. I just take NAC every day. Like I've been taking NAC since like I started getting them to my late forties. Cause I'm like, oh, yeah. oh, my liver needs a little more help than it used to. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I would recommend NAC for anyone, you know, as they're getting into their like later fourth decade, just because we know that that's when people get into trouble with toxins more. Right. Yeah. And uh, so that's bucket number two. Um, and, and then nutrient deficits, you know, we talked about how I've seen even healthy people get into trouble with long COVID. And most of those people had 
low vitamin D or maybe they had, you know, no sources of omegas in their diet because they don't eat fish. Um, and uh, I talk about the importance of iron in women. Uh, for a long time, I wondered why do more women get chronic fatigue syndrome than men? And uh, I started seeing a lot of elevated plasma histamine uh, in these women. And, and that's when I made the riboflavin ferritin connection. Mm -hmm. so I think um, low iron is really a disease of neglect because that's something that I was trained to ignore in my allopathic training. I was trained mm -hmm. to ignore low iron and even anemia if it wasn't severe enough to cause hospitalization. This is in the hospital side, right? But mm -hmm. as I started working in the outpatient at Osher, I realized that just created such a huge turnaround. And I've like cured, you know, quote unquote fibromyalgia, which I don't think was true fibromyalgia, by just correcting a ferritin that was like super, super duper low, right? So yeah. nutrients are super important. And it's a very, that's a very easy bucket to correct. You check it, you, re, you know, you replenish the nutrients. People feel great and they think you're, you know, you're awesome, but you just check the nutrients. You know, it's, it's, right. that's the easy work to do is correcting right. nutrients, right? But you need to check them. You won't know that they're low if you don't check them. And then, mm -hmm. you know, as you and I both work in more preventative medicine, I'm a big fan of everything in what I call the fluffy zone, not too high, not too low mostly. So if mm -hmm. I see low normal levels uh, and people are symptomatic, I'm gonna correct that. I'm mm -hmm. gonna correct the borderline ferritin or a borderline B12 if people are symptomatic, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So that's super important. And it's more of a problem, of course, in people who have limited diets. I see a lot of fatigue in vegan patients. It's a big part of my population. Um, and I see a lot of fatigue in people who don't absorb nutrients because they have IBS or gastrointestinal issues. And so that's a really important one to address. And then um, importantly is high stress physiology. Stress can just completely disrupt your body. It can disrupt your neurologic symptom. It can cause neuroinflammation, but it can also activate your immune system, depress your immune system so you're more susceptible to illness. And of course, when people come out of long COVID, they are neuroinflamed, and so they get more easily overwhelmed by stress. And so it's really important to correct the vagal tone, to do deep breathing, to do other exercises like introduce medita meditative practices to mm -hmm. calm down their central nervous system because it's going to be more easily rattled. But that's actually an important component of physiology that feeds back into the inflammation. So that's when we have that full circle, neuroinflammation causing high stress, and then high stress propagating that neuroinflammation. So that's super mm -hmm. important to break that circle and address it from both places. Yes, take the fish oils and the vitamin D, but yes, please introduce a calming practice for your central nervous system and, and fortify your vagus so that you can break that you know, vicious cycle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like in, you know, most chronic diseases, like that's a leg of the journey, whether it's early or later or just along the way. But um, is the chronic illness not only is um, effect, affected by the central nervous system, but um, it affects the central nervous system. So it's, yeah, it's like so important. Um, well, that was really helpful, and um, I'd love to hear more about um, 
just ways people can follow your work and continue to kind of learn from you. Um, of course, um, going out purchasing your your new book, um, which uh, we'll put the links in our in our show notes and everything like that. But are you um, are you going to continue to get out and educate like this? Is this sort of a um, a path? Or are you taking this to other formats? Yeah. Um, so I, I was speaking to the director of the um, Parnassus uh, Optimal Clinic, which is the post-ICU care clinic, and they have established a brand new clinic for uh, COVID survivors. Um, and um, uh, I'm planning on a couple of things. Uh, I'm planning on uh, creating COVID long haul group visits uh, so I can uh, start helping people who don't really can't really get into my clinic uh, so that uh, I can give them the tools to recover from COVID. So um, I'm hoping to launch uh, the first group visits in June, maybe July. We're in the works of getting the structure in place and getting it approved by the usual channels. Um, mm-hmm. That's maybe people can refer to the OSHA site. We'll probably have... Uh, something, you know, a link uh, in the future uh, when it's available so people can sign up for the long COVID clinic. So that's in the works. Um, And I'm also collaborating with the Optimal Clinic. uh, And we're talking about maybe expanding the program to not just post-ICU because the COVID landscape is sort of evolving now that most people are vaccinated or have had a couple of COVID. Most people have some immunity and we're seeing less ICU admissions, but a lot more people getting long COVID uh, as they get their second or third bout of COVID, the chances Mm. increase. And so it's transitioning from the um, post-ICU care becoming smaller, but the amount of people in the population who are starting to get long COVID is increasing. And so I'm looking to maybe collaborate with the pulmonary clinic to uh, establish a, instead of just a COVID ICU, a COVID med clinic. And uh, so that's in the works as well um, to increase access to care. Uh, But it will also serve as a way for me to start, uh, you know, developing a curriculum for physicians at UCSF to start learning how to treat long COVID. And physicians who learn how to treat long COVID will be in very good shape to treat chronic fatigue syndrome as well. So um, I think the interest now after COVID, the one good thing I think the pandemic has done is probably really, uh, really uh, change in the mindset of people, uh, the interest, foster interest in collaboration and learning how to treat long COVID and therefore chronic fatigue syndrome. So we're starting to see some good studies coming out of the NIH where before there was no funding for chronic fatigue syndrome. And now we're starting to see, I think the uh, Biden administration has allotted like uh, a, a good chunk, you know, for programs to study long COVID and chronic fatigue syndrome. So we're going to see some pretty exciting research coming up in the landscape of uh, CFS and long COVID. And I think COVID has sort of um, stimulated that, you know, in the mind of people. Before it was treated a little bit as, as a rare disease that you would just refer to an integrative practitioner to deal with. But now that so many people have it. 
I think there's more advocacy around let's study this and figure out what's causing it. Let's come up with good protocols. You know, let's develop centers of excellence. And so um, the hope in my collaboration with the pulmonary clinic is to develop a center of excellence for COVID long haulers, but that will also implement curriculum and teaching for other physicians to learn how to treat long COVID. Very nice. So great. Um, yeah, it's exciting. And I think for the people who are dealing with long COVID, I mean, even if they just dabble into one area of this, you know, work on one aspect of their health at a time, it's significantly um, better than sort of just riding this out, right? It's, uh, you know, so, um, but it'll be great when, a great day when, practitioners know how to help people and work work with people because um, a lot of people are being told by their providers it's just so oh, this will resolve over time just rest you know and that that's such a frustrating position for the patients to be in because you know a lot of people they want to work on something yeah and I think you know that kind of uh, response comes from the fact that, Physicians also don't know what to do about it. Right. And if they knew what to do about it, of course, they would do something about it. But not knowing, all they can do is try and reassure the patient that and hope that maybe it'll go away. But uh, part of my uh, reason for writing this book was uh, I wanted to educate patients who are motivated in getting themselves out of the long COVID funk. Um, but I, and, and to be able to advocate for themselves to their physicians and say, Hey, can you check my ferritin level? Can you check my riboflavin level? Can you check plasma histamine? Um, but also I wrote the book in mind that physicians are struggling to treat this. They don't know how, this is not something we were taught in medical school. There's no protocols for you to follow. And, and they're seeing these people, but it's very frustrating for a physician when you don't know how to help a patient. Because physicians want to help, but mm -hmm. part of that mysticism comes from the fact that they don't know how, right? And they can just yeah. hope less. Oh, let's just hope it goes away on its own, you know. Right. But it doesn't. For a significant number of people, it's disabling, and they leave their jobs. So I wrote this book, also wanting in mind having the primary care doctor in mind and trying to digest all of the great information we got from cogents and break it down. The simple nuggets that are actionable, mm -hmm. you know, check these labs, correct them, you know, don't ignore them. And uh, the difficulty in writing the book was like, how do I write a book for patients and doctors at the same time? And I think what made it possible to navigate that fine line was, well, neither of them know how to treat COVID. So assuming zero knowledge of mm -hmm. chronic fatigue syndrome and long COVID, uh, that gave me a starting point. And I wanted to just break it down so that it was simple enough that patients could read it and hopefully not get overwhelmed. Uh, I, yeah. I don't know. Um, but also to provide enough data so that if a physician read it, they could look up the studies, they could look up the evidence behind my recommendations and, and know that there's solid evidence for the recommendations and that it's not just like, you know, in, inventing something that is not going to be useful for them. And so yeah. um, I think once I assumed I have a sophisticated audience of patients who are motivated uh, to read and understand about their disease, 
and uh, doctors who are sophisticated but don't know how to, I was able to craft, a, I hope anyway, that was my goal, uh, to craft a simple enough book that had enough evidence and uh, uh, useful nuggets of information that could be actionable, that mm-hmm. could, you know, provide doctors a way out, a way to really help their patients, but also provide patients knowledge so they could advocate for themselves, you know, before doctors. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you did it. I mean, that's that was my experience in reading the book. It was like the perfect amount of science and research, um, but also easier explanations for people who weren't in the field. So, but uh, that's great. So, well, I thank you so much for your time today. Um, it's been really great speaking with you, and I'll, I'll uh, love to kind of follow your journey and follow the process of, you know, where this leads us. And hopefully, you know, we're, we're in a point where people who are dealing with chronic fatigue syndrome don't have to wait or long COVID don't have to wait years till they get better. You know, it's like early actionable steps, get people back to work, get people back, you know, playing with their kids or with their loved ones. And uh, I mean, this is, you know, instead of just sort of scratching our heads, you know, like this is, it's good to have some early wins. Absolutely. This is absolutely a treatable disease or a treatable syndrome, right? Cause it's not one disease possible. And so I hope that my book can help a lot of people and reach the hands of those people who are really looking, you know, for a guide uh, out of their symptoms. So thank you awesome. so much for inviting me and congratulations on this fantastic podcast. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from that. For the the episode to them and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the one thing podcast. And again, much appreciation for you being here with me.